This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Mike Roberts, an engineering leader and co-founder of Symphonia, a serverless and cloud architecture consultancy. He'll be giving two presentations at the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference in London from October 16th through 19th. One is called Serverless Architectures, What, Why, Why Not, and Where Next? And the other is Designing Serverless AWS Applications. He also gave a presentation at the April 2017 Software Architecture Conference in New York titled An Introduction to Serverless, and you can view a video of that talk at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. We'll have links to all these items and more in the show notes that accompany this episode of the podcast. And a little later, we'll take a quick look ahead to JupyterCon, the official Jupiter conference, which will be held in New York, August 22nd through 25th. We'll get a preview from conference co-chair Fernando Perez. Enjoy the show. Mike Roberts, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. First, let's ask you how you define serverless. Um, it actually covers two different technologies that on their face seem a bit different, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, serverless is kind of a big area, and, and those areas, backend as a service and functions as a service, seem seem on the face a little different, but they definitely have uh, a bunch of common traits, and that's why we group them into this sort of one bigger area that is serverless. And I want to get into some more detail on backend as a service and function as a service a little bit later. But first, I wanted to ask you about uh, if you can say more about something that you've, you've said in the past, and that is that serverless is the next evolution of cloud systems. Uh, yeah. And so if we, if we look at the cloud, what it's really been about over the last sort of 10 to 15 years is how can we outsource more of the things that we do in our engineering efforts that are not really specific to what we do? How can we outsource that? Uh, to an external vendor. And so that really started with infrastructure as a service um, with Amazon back in 2006, when we're like, well, how can we stop having to manage physical server machines anymore? That's not really a differentiator when we're you know, doing whatever our online business is. And so Amazon was like, you know what, we're going to handle managing physical machines for you. And we're going to give you a whole bunch of file storage in the way of S3. So you don't have to worry about network file servers anymore. And so effectively, what we were doing was outsourcing um, some of our, our technical infrastructure to the cloud. Um, and what's happened over the last decade is we've been outsourcing more and more to vendors and sort of raising the abstraction higher and higher about what we have to worry about um, when we're developing and, and operating applications. And we saw that, we see that through sort of the evolution of platform as a service and containers. And that's sort of the, 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 the current sort of natural conclusion of that before we go even further in, in years to come, I'm sure, is serverless, where we're sort of saying, what is what can we abstract even more now? And so we're thinking about, so how do we take away the whole idea of you know, individual process deployment and, and completely outsource that? And how do we take away the idea of resource planning and resource allocation of servers? How can we just you know, hand that off to somebody else as well? And, and so in that way, uh, serverless really is this evolution of the cloud, but it's because it's trying to take these things that we do around our infrastructure and say to Amazon or Google or Microsoft or whomever and say, hey, you handle that for us and we'll, we'll, we'll focus on the software. And in, in some of your presentations and writings in the past, you've mentioned that even companies or organizations that have their applications in the cloud often still view their systems in terms of servers. Why is that? And how does one kind of move away from thinking about it in, in those terms? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that, right? One is that's just the way that we've developed software for, you know, decades and decades. Like that's, that's, it didn't make sense to take every single little function that we do and, and deploy them individually to, uh, you know, to our server side before, because that was just, inc- that would just be an incredibly inefficient way of working in the past. And so all of our plans and, and patterns that we have around developing server-side applications have been around developing uh, de- developing servers. And that's just, that's just sort of our mindset. And so to stop thinking in, in that way is, is, is sort of really to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff that makes what we do efficient. Um, and so that that's going to take a while. So that's sort of the first part of it. And the second part of it is we don't actually know the best ways to create software without thinking in terms of servers yet. We're sort of getting there. And, and, and the people that are using um, serverless architectures right now are sort of figuring it out as they go. And a lot of them are having a heck of a lot of success. Um, but we're still sort of figuring out, okay, what does it mean uh, to not have long-running server processes? How do we best develop applications like that? Um, and, and when is it appropriate to still keep those long-running server processes? Because we definitely don't see a serverless as a as a be-all and end-all. It's definitely a a tool that you can use as part of a larger architecture. So, getting back to the two major aspects of serverless, can you explain more about backend as a service and maybe give us an example? Yeah, so backend as a service in some ways is not new, and really, it's it's about how do we take external um, service components. Um, and incorporate those into our applications. And so, you know, we've we've been thinking about software as a service now for a while, and whether that's very business process focused, like something like Salesforce, or sort of more engineering focused, something like GitHub. These are these completely outsourced services that we use in our day-to-day processes. Whereas backend as a service is more about how do we incorporate external components into our entire applications. And, and sometimes that's a database, sometimes that's an application component. And one of the examples I like to talk about most is this whole idea of user management and user authentication and all that kind of stuff, because that's a piece of code that we often have to write in our applications that really isn't a differentiator across applications. And we normally write the same thing every time. And so we're seeing services from companies like Auth0 um, and Amazon with uh, their Cognito product, which is all about how do we outsource that, that piece of our application to somebody else. And so backend as a service is, is about how do we incorporate third-party application, uh, third-party components into our applications? But it's a little bit more than that as well. You know, people say, "Oh, yeah, you can you can outsource you know SQL databases for a while." But when we're outsourcing SQL databases, we're still sort of thinking in terms of, well, how many servers do we need to run that outsourced um, service on? And when you're using a backend as a service product. A lot of those sort of infrastructural thoughts and needs are completely abstracted for you. So when you're using uh, an authentication service like Auth0, you're not thinking about uh, how many servers uh, your that product is running running on or anything like that. That's that's still completely abstracted from you, and you don't have to think about you know well what happens if I scale up from 100 users to 10,000 users. That's all part of uh, the vendor providing that service for you. And is it correct that that the real buzz about serverless is really coming from the second of those two ideas, the, the function as a service piece? Uh, that's definitely true. I mean, certainly the buzz is coming from that. Um, and that's partly because this sort of landed uh, relatively recently. And 
you know, with Amazon Lambda is sort of the, the main the main thing that people think about when they think about functions as a service. And that's been out less than three years. Whereas some of the back end as a service components that we see have actually been around a lot longer. I and mean, we, we talk about Amazon S3 as being the original serverless service. And that's been around 11 years now. So the, the thing with backend as a service is it doesn't feel like too much of a jump. We've already been using these things for a while, whereas functions as a service is a much more significant change to how we think and how we work. And that's sort of a little bit why it's, it's come with a lot of the buzz, because it's, it's the significant change. So we've also heard quite a bit about organizations moving to microservices. And in fact, we've discussed this in past episodes of this podcast. Can you tell us um, what are the similarities and the differences between a serverless architecture and microservices? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the interesting thing is that these two things are not necessarily you know, completely separate. Um, there, in, in a lot of ways, you can take the ideas that we're, we're, we've got from microservices and actually apply that to functions of service. So sometimes you can think about saying, oh, well, we're going to, we're actually going to write a microservice as a collection of functions implemented using functions as a service and some backend as a service components as well. That, that combination might actually form a microservice, which is quite interesting. And so to me, there's not necessarily you're writing microservices or you're using serverless. It's like, you know, you can, you can be doing both. A little bit where it gets a, a, a bit different is microservices are still typically thought about as you know you're running a a long running service you you deploy uh, an application and it's sitting there and running and, and when you use serverless you're you're not thinking about running long running components yourself um, and so there is a little bit of adjustment there but uh, no I, I definitely think that it's we, you know I was actually talking to some folks this week about moving to serverless and you know we sort of had a two or three day conversation about kicking off a, a large project with them and a lot of the stuff that we were talking about comes straight from the microservices conversations. And in fact, you know, nice O'Reilly tie in here. I, I kept pointing them to Sam Newman's book uh, about microservices to, as, as, a, as a lot of what we were talking about, because there's, there's a lot to be learned from that, from that area as well that's useful uh, with serverless. Well, let's stay on the moving to serverless theme. You, you've mentioned that anyone or any organization using the public cloud can benefit by migrating to serverless. But how does one decide when it's right and, um, and when the right time is? I think it's right when you have, you know, you're not completely up against the wall uh, with something that you're delivering right now. If you have uh, a little bit of slack, and, and most organizations have a little bit of slack, I think it's one of those things that, that any organization that's, that's using the public cloud, as I said, can sort of in investigate and look at um, as sort of a, a possible advancement area and how they and how they develop software. Because the wonderful thing about server, well, one of the wonderful things about serverless, although I am incredibly biased, is, is that it, it's not an all or nothing approach. And, and some of the best usages that we've seen of serverless have been where companies have introduced a tiny, tiny use of serverless into an existing architecture, you know, whether it's a tiny little integration with uh, an extra third party that they need to integrate, or whether it's a, a use of um, a function within their deployment process or their monitoring process. The, the fact is that, that, that using serverless in those ways is a, is a very, very small impact at the start to your overall uh, operations. And once you've got comfortable with that, then you can start thinking about, well, do we want to start building entire applications or entire services uh, using more of this technology. And so there's the, the fact that it's really easy to slowly step into this means that it's um, it's great to sort of kick off at any time. And when a move to serverless is discussed, often the, the major 
benefits cited are cost saving and shorter lead times. Can you talk about both of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the cost savings come in a couple of, you know, normally come in a couple of places. And it depends somewhat on, on the applications that you're writing and what you're doing. But oftentimes we see cost savings on sort of the pure infrastructure side, because most applications that we write are not active 24 by 7. Um, there's, there's, there's some amount of downtime, whether it's at the evening or at the weekends, or sometimes just during the day, maybe you're you're busy for a minute and then not busy for five minutes and then busy for a minute again. And in any of these situations, the fact that you get this automatic upscaling and downscaling with uh, with serverless can re- and, and the fact that you're billed by what you're actually using can be a much more efficient way of, of paying for resources that you're using. And so that often leads to infrastructure savings. The other place it can lead to savings is, you know, as your team is growing and you're thinking, oh my goodness me, we're going to have to hire a bunch of, you know, operations engineers to now manage all of our, our, our systems administration and, and look after all our puppet and chef and Ansible and all that stuff. Um, you know, as an alternative, companies can look into using serverless approaches and may find they, they don't really need to sort of hire nearly as many people to, to do that work after all, because they can instead effectively lean on whatever their cloud provider is to, to do that work for them. And that's sort of the two, couple of places that we see cost savings is in, is in infrastructure and in labor. But then the other thing that you mentioned, which is the thing that we're much more excited about, is you know how much quicker it can be to develop a new idea from scratch using a serverless approach. Because this sort of idea, this sort of thing about you know, how do I go from concept to being in production at scale with something? We believe that serverless, we being myself and my business partner, believe that serverless is is a far more effective platform for doing that than any other platform that we've seen. So getting this um, sort of lead time reduced so that we can start getting feedback from real users as quickly as possible, um, we see as the, as the main advantage to serverless. Well, let's look at the other side, the, the drawbacks or limitations of serverless. What's kind of at the top of the list there that everyone should be aware of? Um, there's a few things that, that, that people are, should be aware of, and there's a few things that people sort of talk about, um, and there's some overlap between the two. The, the main thing that you know, people need to be aware of is some of these technologies, especially in the functions as a service area, are, are very new, um, and they require new models of thinking and new models of architecture. And there are in many in many ways, there's not a you know I can't I can't point to the the ten year experience driven book of serverless software architecture patterns that just doesn't exist right now um, because we just as an industry we haven't been using this stuff long enough yet. And what that means is we can't say here here are a set of good practices. If you follow this, you're going to be good. A lot of this requires you know rolling up your sleeves and sort of trying a few things out and seeing what works for your context. And that's both in terms of architecture um, and in terms of tooling. Like a lot of the tooling is still um, catch, catching up to, to the needs of this world. Um, we have everything that we need at a fundamental level, but some of the, you know, the highly efficient tooling that we get around some more traditional architectures are just not there yet. And so the main thing people to know about is it might not be smooth sailing the first time you use this stuff because you're going to be getting used to it as a team. So that's the main limitation that we think people should know about. You know, the other things that we sort of talk a lot about are, you know, uh, sort of is, is this sort of a lot more vendor lock-in to which we say, well, yes, but, you know, that's where we're moving in the cloud in general. If you're building a highly cloud-dependent microservice architecture, you're going to be use, used to, you know, using more and more high-value cloud services. So 
yeah, in in the same way that that we're seeing in the cloud native world, you know, there's an amount of vendor lock in. That's that's the same in the serverless world. So that's one thing that we always get asked. And sort of the second thing we always get asked about is, you know, what do you do with testing? Um, and testing is definitely trickier in this world, but, but, but again, because we're relying so much on services that are not running on our own our own laptops or our own, our own servers, that means that testing gets a little trickier. And, and sort of what we're saying now is that, you know, actually using the cloud for a lot of our uh, functional integration, functional and integration testing um, is, is sort of a is, is, is sort of a requirement now, which is a bit unusual for people who are used to writing all of their functional integration tests being able to run on their own on their own systems. Mike, what's an example of a technology that people may think of as being serverless but really isn't? <laughs> I can get into trouble on this one. I, I, I think there's you know there's a number of places here where you know is something serverless or not. Um, you know, I, I think we can we can answer those questions, but. And I will in a moment. But before I do that, you know, that's not to say say that, you know, if something is serverless, then, it, then it's better than the other, right? You know, serverless is a type of approach to solving a problem. And it, it isn't inherently good or bad. So one sort of thing that we were, we were sort of talking about in the industry definitely a year or so ago is, you know, is containers as a service serverless? So, you know, Google have um, uh, their Google container platform based on Kubernetes. And is that serverless? Um, and, and right now we're saying, no, that's not serverless. And it's not serverless for a couple of reasons. One is because typically when you're using, especially, I don't know too much about the Google implementation, but if you're using um, some other cloud vendors implementations of, of, of using containers, you're still thinking about, well, how big is our cluster? And you're still thinking about resource allocation and resource provisioning. And if you're doing that, sort of this whole abstraction from, well, how many machines under the covers isn't really there. And so that's one reason that they're not serverless. And the other reason is we're not, we're not thinking yet, typically when we're using those systems, about writing applications in, in event-driven functions. We're still thinking about writing applications as um, long-running processes. Um, and that, again, is sort of rubs a little bit against um, sort of what, how we have defined serverless. But I think containers, as a, especially containers as a service, is a really, really useful platform for a, for a lot of companies. And, and you know, I, we, we push pretty hard on saying, you know, oftentimes the best architecture for a company is going to be a hybrid architecture between serverless and non-serverless technologies. And as long as people go into that knowing that there are a few things they need to be concerned about, then, you know, whether something is serverless or not serverless is is not a, uh, a value judgment. It's just about knowing the capabilities of each of those types of technology. I wanted to get your assessment of the current state of the art in the serverless world now. Um, you've, you've said that you're cautiously optimistic, right? <laughs> I am cautiously optimistic. Um, and, you know, I, I, I I'm 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 less cautious and more optimistic I think I was than a year ago. You know what I what I see right now is a lot of movement forward on the technical side. Um and and that's great and we're seeing movement on on the tooling especially one of the things that I talked about a year or so ago that was my main concern around tooling was distributed monitoring. If we're taking what was one monolithic server application and turning that into 50 to 100 separate, separately deployed functions as a service, how the heck do we know what's going on in our, in our production deployment? And it's crucial there to have a unified logging and monitoring approach 
uh, to that entire architecture. And I really didn't see the tooling there a year ago. And, and we're, see, we're starting to see that appear now. And there's, there's sort of one example is Amazon's X-Ray tool, which is really about this whole idea of distributed monitoring or distributed systems monitoring, as I should say. And, you know, it's not it's not complete yet, but, you know, Amazon are moving in, in the right direction. And we're seeing a whole bunch of, of really great movement in, in other areas of technical tooling where we're still a little bit slow, and this is not really surprising, is, is starting to see, okay, well, what are the patterns of good serverless architecture? That's still, you know, a little bit ways out, and most people are still um, figuring this out. We're starting to see more case studies come out, which is very, very useful. But, you know, it's going to probably be a couple of years or so until we see enough case studies that we can take the common themes of that and start saying, all right, what, where do we start when we're trying to build a serverless architecture? What are the where do, what are the places that we should start with? Yeah, and and looking ahead, how do you see serverless playing out in the next say few years? I still think it's going to be huge, and I think it's going to be huge because of the lead time advantages that it brings. You know, there is this sort of slight doubt where I go, you know, what maybe containers is so amazing, and we're going to get so good at container platforms that actually that ends up being the way people work because it's closer to how we've architected systems before. But I still think that, you know, mostly I think that we're going to be using both. And I think this whole area where you can stand up a few functions so quickly um, and it can scale so easily and the, the ability to, to get, you know, an idea from someone's head to production in less than a day is going to be incredibly powerful. And people, you know, why would we ever need that? And, you know, you could ask the same question 15, 20 years ago when it used to take months or years to go from a concept to production. And we can say, well, you know, we can get that down to days or weeks. And people back then would have said, oh, why would we ever need that? And it turns out that that was really useful. And that's the way we work now. It's like it's, it's days or weeks um, lead time. So getting down to hours of lead time, you know, I think is just a progression of, of, of how we develop applications as an industry. But to get to that point, we need technologies like serverless as well as a whole bunch of organizational changes to allow us to, to get to that point of really, really short feedback and, and short lead time. And bringing the whole serverless discussion back to kind of how it impacts someone writing code. Mm. Um, bottom line, what do you think would be the difference in how someone writing code would work as far as writing code for a serverless architecture versus a traditional architecture? I think it's going to be very satisfying for developers because there's this there's this element of you're working on something and it might be, you know, weeks until that software is actually running in the wild and you start getting any feedback on it. And the great thing is if you've built a, you know, a good, a good serverless platform in your company, you might be able to get a, a, a new idea out in, in a few hours uh, and get that tested and get that in production. You know, you could be working on it today and it could be in production at scale tomorrow. And, and based on that feedback, you'll be able to go, oh, okay, there's actually some changes that we want to make here. And I think most software engineers, are, you know, are, are, in, are interested in how what they're building is used. Mm -hmm. But there's always, there's, you know, there's oftentimes such a disconnect between the process of, of writing code and, and who's actually using it. And I think if we can massively reduce the cycle time um, and the lead time from when we write code to it being used, I think that's going to be um, extremely satisfying for developers. And they're going to be able to get much more aware of how their software is being used and be able to sort of really sort of think about how they can improve uh, the lives of their customers and how they can make their customers more awesome. Well, Mike, if listeners want to find out more about you or what you're up to, uh, where should they look? So I started a, a company at the beginning of the year 
named Symphonia. Um, and I started out with my business partner, John Chapin. And we're really dedicated to this whole idea of uh, serverless and cloud architecture in general. And how can we help companies get into this through, um, and we do that through training and speaking at conferences and writing and, and consulting. Um, and we do a lot of writing on our on our website um, and all of our talks are online. So that's that's there. We're obviously on Twitter. Uh, so my Twitter handle is Mike B. Robert, um, and our company Twitter handle is Symphonia Cloud. And you can always email me. So Mike at Symphonia.io is my email address. I love hearing from folks and seeing you know what kind of thoughts they have about this whole area. Well, great. Mike Roberts, co-founder of Symphonia, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Well, JupyterCon, the official Jupiter conference, will be held in New York from August 22nd through 25th. It features tutorials, training courses, sessions, and keynote presentations on the Project Jupiter platform, and it's hosted by the NumFocus Foundation and O'Reilly Media. And for a bit of a preview of JupyterCon, we are now joined by the conference co-chair, Fernando Perez. Fernando is an assistant professor at the UC Berkeley Statistics Department, and he created IPython, which has evolved into Project Jupiter. Hi, Fernando. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me here. Of course, and thank you for joining us. And before we get into some specifics about the conference, can you talk about Project Jupiter from the perspective of a programmer or developer? We seem to hear about Jupiter a lot from the data science and scientific research perspectives, but how are programmers and developers benefiting from using this tool and, and platform? Sure. Um, I think many of the, uh, of the ideas and the reasons why the tools in IPython and Jupyter are useful for data scientists can actually be very useful for programmers as well. And it's the fact that I think um, exploring code interactively, exploring libraries, uh, testing your code interactively um, is, is an excellent way of getting a feel for what your code is doing. It's an excellent way of learning how tools and libraries work, for example. One of the reasons why we put so much effort into simple things like tap completion or the question mark machinery in IPython was because for me, for example, the easiest way of learning a Python library is to import an IPython and start tabbing and hitting question mark on various objects and quickly reading documentation, examples, and maybe even the source code for, for that library, uh, trying a few line snippets of, of using the library to understand what it does, and then gradually transferring that, uh, that kind of workflow into standalone code, um, into kind of library and, and, and larger programs. And so I think uh, programmers and software developers are not don't necessarily have to think of themselves as a different crowd from data scientists, but rather as a, I think it's more of a continuum between interactive exploration and building persistent uh, reusable libraries. Um, and, uh, and I also think that the machinery that Jupyter exposes now uh, with, with notebooks and with a platform independent, uh, language independent, architecture where the same ideas of interactive exploration now don't only work in Python with IPython, but they also work across other programming languages, can help developer teams that use multiple languages to share effectively live documented code um, in the form of notebooks. And that code can still be exported or connected to um, existing uh, existing reusable libraries. So I, in my mind, it's a there's a continuum between interactive exploration, literate documented uh, code in the form of notebooks that can be complement the library and the development of, of persistent uh, of persistent programs. Um, and finally, even from the interactive side and the data science side, we've been adding features to uh, to the Jupyter machinery and, uh, and and infrastructure that actually take us closer 
into the direction of reusable library code. For example, now there's ways of uh, there's ways of importing notebooks, for example, as as Python libraries in a kind of in a smart way, so that you can build interactive documented literate uh, notebooks, but actually reuse them, you reuse the functions and libraries and classes defined therein as library code um, in other parts of code. And the evolution of the Jupyter Notebook interface, which is called Jupyter Lab, that is currently in sort of an alpha beta cycle, uh, and that we hope to release uh, in the next few months uh, in a stable fashion, effectively takes the pieces of the Jupyter interactive machinery and allows you to recompose them in different ways, not only with notebooks, but also with consoles, with markdown documents, uh, with standalone uh, text uh, code, source code files. So it basically bridges sort of the gap between the notebook style interface and more traditional programmer IDE style interfaces. And Jupyter Lab is an effort that, that has been developed over the last couple of years between the Jupyter team, Continuum Analytics, and Bloomberg, uh, and that we're very excited about. And just to look ahead at some of the sessions that'll be part of JupyterCon, um, one of the sessions is going to be about the UC Berkeley Data Science Program, which, if I understand correctly, is an introductory computer programming course in which the students use Jupyter Notebooks. And this session uh, will be presented by two students. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yes. Yeah, so this is a this is a very exciting development in the last few years. Uh, Berkeley has embarked sort of a, on an ambitious effort to build uh, build a, a data science a data science infrastructure on campus. There's a new division of data science for which a, a new interim dean was named uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, and as part of that, uh, the efforts in that division, there's an educational initiative that has at the at the bottom. Um, an introduction to data science course called Foundations of Data Science, which is offered right now. It's already serving about a thousand students, I think, this in the fall semester. And ideally, it would serve uh, every incoming freshman, regardless of their major. So it's not really a computer science or a programming course. It's really a course uh, aimed to teach sort of an educated citizen of 2020, if you will, um, what should they know about reasoning with data and about reasoning with data and making inferences in a data-rich world using computational tools. And the environment in which the students operate is Jupyter Notebooks with, with small amounts of Python code, and they learn some programming, but the emphasis is on quantitative reasoning about the world. And what's fascinating about that is that that foundational course, which ultimately will basically reach all of the Berkeley campus, is, is the bottom layer on top of which now other courses build upon that maybe more advanced statistics courses, more advanced machine learning courses, data science courses that go into the discipline, say physics, biology, neuroscience, social sciences, the humanities, art. And obviously, also programming. So there's also courses that take that foundation and go deeper um, into C computer science and, and software engineering. So what we're going to have in a few years is basically an entire campus which is sort of trained on these technologies and this and this and this way of thinking. Uh, and I think that's very exciting. And it's an effort that has been led by obviously led by faculty, but with a huge involvement and participation of students at all levels, even in course development and technical development, and that has has had a great impact in terms of uh, of diversity. It's it's the fastest growing course in the history of Berkeley and has a huge, wow. uh, uh, relatively uh, much improved participation of women and underrepresented minorities. So it's a really exciting development. That's great. There are also going to be a couple of tutorials at the conference, which seem like they might be of real interest to programmers, um, one on Jupyter Widgets and one on Jupyter Lab. Can you talk more about those? Sure. The Jupyter Lab one, as I, as I was mentioning, uh, Jupyter Lab is an evolution of the user interface where the notebooks continue to be, to be available, but now you can also have 
in a UI that is very flexible and where the components can be recomposed uh, and reorganized on the page. You can have notebooks, you can have terminals, you can have text editors, you can have consoles that connect to computational kernels. And so you can, we, we, we don't call it an ID, we call it an ID in the sense of interactive development environment rather than an integrated development environment, meaning the emphasis is still on Jupyter's abilities to do interactive computing, but now with many tools that are probably more familiar to programmers who are used to, to traditional IDEs like say Eclipse or Visual Studio Code or, or, or such tools. And so I think programmers may find that very interesting as a way of taking the skills and the environments they're used to and bringing the Jupyter machinery into them. And, uh, and the widgets are, uh, are a piece of, of machinery that evolved originally out of IPython, but it's now available to the whole Jupyter architecture that I like to call just-in-time GUIs, just-in-time graphical user interfaces, in the sense that they allow you to produce with very small amounts of code a small GUI that provides a few interactive controls to maybe explore some parameters, to maybe um, get some figures and control some aspects of a piece of code but that you can call, uh, you can create them often with one or two lines of code and you can pop them up only when you need them. So it allows you to obtain graphical controls without the overhead of developing a large complex standalone GUI. Sometimes that's the right thing to do for certain problems, but when you're developing small programs that explore specific uh, specific. Uh, questions where you're not completely sure what the workflow should be, developing a large complex GUI may be too much work up front. And so I think uh, I think this notion of small just-in-time GUIs is an interesting complement to the programmer's toolbox that goes beyond, um, it doesn't replace, but it goes kind of beyond uh, what traditional um, large-scale GUI frameworks uh, are designed to. We've been talking about the upcoming JupyterCon, August 22nd through 25th in New York City. And for more information or to register, go to conferences.oreilly.com slash Jupiter. And we'll have that link and others in the show notes that accompany this episode. Fernando Perez, the conference co-chair, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks a lot for having me, Jeff. Look forward to seeing a lot of programmers at JupyterCon. Thanks for listening, and once again, for more information on the presentations that will be given by our first guest, Mike Roberts, at the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference in London in October, you can go to conferences.oreilly.com software-architecture. And to access Mike's past presentations, as well as his video course, AWS Lambda, and the free ebook, What is Serverless?, both of which he collaborated with John Chapin on, go to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform at safaribooksonline.com, and we'll have links to all these items in the show notes that accompany this podcast. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle. 